another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it. In this week's episode, I'm very excited to be interviewing a former BBC News legend, although he definitely would not call himself that. Rory Kathleen-Jones is a journalist and former BBC lifer, as we used to call them in the Beeb. Rory is the BBC's former technology correspondent and the author of two books, Bomb: The Rise and Fall of Dotcom Britain, and his most recent book, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Smartphone Era, which we will do a deep dive into on this episode. In this episode, we discuss the link between social media use and mental health, Rory fighting his way up the greasy BBC poll, his emotional relationship with the BBC, social class, his diagnosis of Parkinson's and how it's changed his life. So this is how my check-in with the great Rory Kathleen-Jones went. It is an honour and a privilege to welcome Rory Kathleen-Jones to the Just Checking In pod. It's fair to say I am in the presence of former BBC News royalty, so thank you for coming on, mate, and letting me check in with you. You must be feeling pretty good now that Brentford have secured Premier League survival. How are you? Yeah, no, I had a very interesting last day of the Premiership season a few days ago when we had nothing to play for except mm. pride. And there's You're a lot trying of to send leads down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we somehow managed to get down to nine men because partly because of the dear old manager using the subs too early, and partly because Sergi Cano scored an equaliser, celebrated by taking his shirt off, got booked for that, immediately fouled a Leeds player, got sent off, and then we lost in the last minute. But there we are. I'm a Huddersfield fan. We were recording this the day before the championship playoff final, which I'm glad I'm doing because if I was doing it afterwards, I'm either going to be an emotional wreck either way. So yeah, glad I'm doing this on a Saturday and not on a Sunday. I loved your book, Rory, Always On, and I'm really excited to talk about it and the rest of your illustrious career and life and mental health journey. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I'm ready. Your journalism journey is pretty straightforward, Rory, as you haven't been around too many places, as you told me off air, but take me back to the beginning. Tell me why you became inspired to be a journalist, where your love for it started, and the journey to where you are today. Well, I suppose I had quite a glamorous view of journalism, particularly while I was growing up and at university. I'd seen too many films where they were brave and brilliant and finding out stuff and bringing the mighty down, you know, films like All the President's Men and so on. But I didn't have the drive at first to get involved, for instance, in student journalism, which back then, if you wanted to get into journalism, unless you got in at 16 in a local paper, you wanted to go to university and prove at university that you could do it. I was at Cambridge and I was intimidated by people who did the student newspaper. I thought they were much cleverer than me. Then I went away for a year to Paris because I was studying languages and came back and two things happened. A, I was not so intimidated because I was now older than a lot of people. And B, a lot of my friends had left 
and become chartered accountants, <laughs> which to me was a fate worse than death. <laughs> and I thought, I really do want to do this journalism business. And I flung myself into student journalism, got on the newspaper, became the features editor of the newspaper. Back then, there were all these great journalism schemes, which there are hardly any of them left. The BBC alone had three different schemes. ITV had a scheme, Reuters had a scheme, and I got quite a long way with all of them and then found myself at a loose end because I hadn't actually, I'd got to the final stage of the BBC's news trainee scheme and hadn't got it. And then I wrote to, on somebody's advice, to every single BBC regional newsroom and one of them wrote back and that was the BBC newsroom in Leeds who had a short-term contract for a researcher. And I took that job. My mum said, it's only a short-term contract, you sure? And I stayed for 40 years, <laughs> not all in Leeds. And I, at various stages, thought of leaving, you know, applied for a couple of jobs outside. But actually, the BBC was brilliant in terms of the variety of career you could have there. You didn't just have to do radio. You didn't just have to do telly. You could work on long-form programmes. You could work on breaking news. I mean, navigating your way through it is a bit of a nightmare, but there are all sorts of potential ladders as well as snakes once you're in the BBC system. You were able to climb the BBC poll, as we should say, pretty quickly. So you became a sub-editor within 18 months of joining at National News, and then a year later you were promoted to producer. You then made the decision to move to Cardiff and sort of get in touch with your Welsh roots. Your mum said you'd be mad to do it, so why did you? Well, I was brought up by my mum, who had been a BBC secretary and was absolutely imbued with BBC culture. But she was also, because she'd had quite a difficult, insecure life being a single mum twice over, she was also quite conservative in her attitudes, was conservative with a small c. And I'd become a producer in London quite young. It was a time of huge expansion. The Breakfast TV was just getting underway. Programmes like Newsnight were in their prime. And I was working on, on all of those and travelling abroad with people like John Simpson. But I really wanted to be on the telly. The way to do that was to leave London. And I applied to Cardiff, not necessarily I mean, because of my Welsh roots, because, you know, I was brought up in South London. But I thought it was attractive and I had a couple of goes and they eventually gave me a job. But it meant a job on a contract not on the staff, leaving the pension scheme and all that. And my mum thought that was crazy to give up your pension. And of course, at 25, 26, you don't really worry much about your pension. And you're completely right not to worry about your pension. People used to lecture me about pensions and I used to yawn and I still yawn even today. So I took the opportunity and I went to Cardiff. You then got that coveted job, the BBC correspondent. It was a technology correspondent role. And you did so after being quite a depressed point at that stage because you were a business reporter previously and you were sort of struggling to land that coveted job. Can you just explain where you were in this stage for me? Well, there's a, a lot happens before that happens. So I had two years in Cardiff, which was great. And I've still got friends from back then. And then I got a, a short term contract back in London as a reporter on breakfast. And then they started this business unit and I became a reporter in the business unit. About the time I started going out with my now wife, who's a very smart economist, I used to ring her up and say, what does GDP stand for? <laughs> um, but I was fighting my way up the greasy pole to become a correspondent. That's what everybody wanted to be. And I kept getting knockbacks. Eventually, I did get a correspondence job. But somehow being a business correspondent was not quite specialist enough. 
being a TV news reporter in those days, and still is to some extent, is, is all about the pictures, which is a great skill, being able to write to pictures. There was more journalism done in newspapers, to be frank, because you weren't able to specialise that much. For instance, I would do Marks and Spencer's annual results for the one o'clock news, and then I wouldn't go near the company for another year, whereas a real specialist business reporter would be intimate with the company because he'd be doing all the he or she would be doing all the little stories as well as the big stories. And about that time I got interested in technology. This is the late nineties, and decided those were the really interesting business stories, the rise of Google, the dot-com bubble, and so on. And I did begin to get embedded and feel that I was a real specialist. So that's what I wanted to pursue. And there were a lot of frustrations getting there, moments of self-doubt, particularly in the 90s, that I would ever get, first of all, the, even the business correspondent job. And then after that, the technology correspondent job eventually came along in 2007, and I really landed on my feet, and that was great. Mm. Before we talk about the book, there was a period where you were working on a particular BBC program, I won't say which one, which you told me off air was a pretty toxic environment and you said it was the most stressed you'd ever been in your work. So what were your memories of that time? Why was it so stressful? Well, it was a long form programme. I don't feel any reason to disguise the name. It was the money programme. And in a way, it was great because quite soon after I got back from Cardiff, I spent a year or two on that program making it's a real change. I'd been used to doing daily news instead of which I was spending six weeks, maybe two months on a project making a, a 20 minute film with a producer and a crew and so on. And that was a wholly different kind of stress. I was quite good at the bish, bash, bosh, get it out, hit the deadline stuff on the day because each day you started with a clean slate. I remember once on Newsnight, I'd had a terrible disaster as a producer. Everything fell apart and I was berated by the editor. And the next day I came in and the Brighton bomb had gone off and he said, forget about yesterday, I want you on this story. And there was something quite healthy about that in a way. Whereas with these long-term projects, they were hanging over you all the time, day and night. And the management of that programme was not great. and it was the high days of Bertism, where effectively you decided what the story was by intense research before you ever shot a frame. And then you went out and almost painting by numbers, got the bits that added up to your thesis, which has its advantages, but didn't allow much flexibility. And we'd come back from these long filming trips and I would say to the camera crew, you're lucky, you go on to your next filming trip. We go back to be beaten to a pulp by the editor who says, well, they were supposed to say this and they didn't say this. <laughs> you know? So that was very stressful. Let's talk about your book, Always On Now. It's absolutely brilliant. I really enjoy reading it. And tell me why you wanted to write it. And did you want to do it before or after you were no longer bound by BBC impartiality? <laughs> I wanted to write it because somebody came to me to talk about me writing a book. <laughs> I mean, just put some perspective on it. I'd written one book in 2001 about the dot-com bubble. Yep. And that had been a huge challenge and very exciting to do. Like 95% of books made no money whatsoever. <laughs> it was published on September the 9th, 2001, which turned out not to be a great time to publish a book. Oh, dear, no. Um, yeah. But I'd talked since then over the years to various publishers about various book ideas, 
including one about this new company called Facebook. Was it uh, the Facebook back then as well? <laughs> it had gone beyond the right. Facebook. It was a few years into Facebook. But the agent stroke publisher who came to me said, uh, I, I don't think so. It doesn't sound to me like it's going to be around that long. I don't think it's worth a book. But in the summer of 2019, a publisher came to me and we worked together on the concept of the book which was going to be about the smartphone era. And I felt that it was just a perfect time to encapsulate the huge amounts of change that I'd been witness to. Because my very first story as BBC technology correspondent, although I'd been covering the field for years, but with the official title, was effectively the unveiling of the iPhone by Steve Jobs in January 2007. And that, in my view, kicked off the smartphone era. And I'd had a to use a cliche, a ringside seat at all of that. So mm. I did feel that there was a book in that. Mm. And the great guy from Bloomsbury Publishing, Jamie Burkett, helped me refine my thoughts and, and turn it into a book. On the iPhone, did it feel like a modern day's Pandora's box opening, but in a sleek white one instead of one guarded by Greek gods and three-headed dogs or something? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Maybe I'm not reflective enough but when the phone came out what it felt like was a huge innovation something magical being done to these devices which we were already pretty excited about the idea of being able to phone on them I remember it was something like 1984 and I was in the London TV newsroom and on the lunchtime business news came this announcement that two companies had been given a license to operate a mobile phone system it was all going to be in millionaires' cars, car phones, basically, then. But it sounded really exciting, and it continued to be really exciting. But in 2007, we got a certain way towards moving phones from being just talking devices to internet devices, but only really geeky people could do it. And the phones were very clunky in terms of their interface. The iPhone just immediately looked both exciting and accessible and magical. And what was assigned to me was that as I came rushing out of the hall in San Francisco to try and cut my piece for the 10 o'clock news with not much time to spare, the news desk rang from London and said, we've just seen the pictures of that phone. It's amazing. You need to get your hands on it, which was a sort of impossible task. But the news desk was never excited about new technology before then and not much afterwards. So it was a real measure of how... It caught the public imagination. When it comes to tech itself, a lot of the pushback against what people call big tech right now, Rory, as you know, revolves around free speech and intrusion into our private lives. And a very interesting quote I want to pick out by a tech blogger called Robert Scoble in the book, who said, quote, privacy stuff does not resonate with normal people. Now, although he said this in 2010, did you or him or anyone know what was to come and, and the now backlash from, I guess, the public and maybe even further than that in the sort of last two or three years? I think Scoble got it wrong, really. We got it right and wrong. I think lots of people do worry about privacy or think it's important, but there's a difference between how they pronounce about privacy and how important they say it is and then how they act. So lots of people who thought privacy was important to them would then go on Facebook and spill their secrets to advertisers and to the world or go on to do that on Instagram and so on. And for it to become an issue that actually moved the needle in a way 
we had to have those scandals that er erupted, you know, around 2016 and so on, Cambridge Analytica scandal in particular, to make people understand the power of these social networks and how they were wielding it and what that meant for our privacy. I still think privacy is a kind of concept that people theorise about and worry about at a sort of big level. But when it comes to how they behave online, for many, they don't show much evidence of, that they care that much about it. They don't change their behaviour. I want to talk about how the apps and technology in this day and age have affected the younger <laughs> generation. And at various points in the book, you talk about the impact of all of these, especially on Gen Z, or as you label them, Generation App. Now, for the listeners to juxtapose just how quickly this change has happened from when I was in school or started secondary school in 2005 to now, you interviewed a family in Finland in the year 2000 who all had Nokia phones because Finland is where Nokia is housed or the company comes from. And your editor almost didn't run it because it seemed too yeah. far-fetched to broadcast no, at not. the time that was extraordinary i came back and said i've got this family the mum and dad each have a mobile phone and the kids aged 11 and 9 have one too and she said i don't believe that that's ridiculous and of course that changed very rapidly that was way before the app era that was 99 2000 yeah mm. You spoke about this juxtaposition between books by Gene Twenge's iGen and Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianos, The Coddling of American Mind. I've actually read both of those books. And the opposing viewpoint by a researcher called Dr. Amy Auburn. What is your perspective on how smartphones and social media have affected the younger generation? Because I think I always joke that dating apps have fucked my generation up and social media has fucked up Gen Z. <laughs> well, that chapter of the book is called Always On, in the book Always On, reflects on that kind of conflict between the people who are really panicked about it and the people who are, have a more subtle view. I really sympathised with Amy Auburn, who was the person that I interviewed who was both young enough to be part of the iPhone generation. I think she was something like 12 when the iPhone came out. She's in her mid to late 20s now, but also a really very well-respected academic She's a Cambridge University psychologist. And she was rigorous, whereas a lot of the older people writing about this, even the academics, were not very rigorous. There was a kind of, you know, oh, blanket sort of, these things are harming our kids. And there was a few data points plucked to make a story which didn't really seem to me to be totally convincing. Obviously, there is some impact on mental health, but what Amy says is there's not enough data to paint the lurid picture that some people do paint. And we have the same moral panic with every new form of technology. I've been writing a lot about sleep lately, <laughs> and there's a lot of panic about kids staying up, watching their smartphones, and that being bad for their sleep, which it undoubtedly is. But one of the sleep scientists who was warning against this also was quite balanced about it. He said, look back to the 1930s there were editorials in newspapers saying young people are staying up to all hours listening to the radio it's an absolute scourge so I think we have to take quite a balanced view try and look where the data is see where the dangers are and try to mitigate them but also see the positive sides mm. of the technology 
you talked about sleep there and calm is a mobile phone app which has helped loads of people with their mental health Rory. it doesn't work for me but i know it's helped many others and many guests on the yeah. podcast have, have referenced it but what i found fascinating is when you went to visit them and the founder talked very vaguely about this the quote is work-life blend not work-life balance is there a hypocrisy about an organization dedicated to well-being there being a bit flimsy about work-life balance because that term seems like rubbish to me well there's a general thing which i sort of picked up on where counterintuitively silicon valley people who are the people who've driven us into this sort of 24 hours tied to our devices cycle don't want it for their kids. (laughs) Yeah, don't let their kids, oh, I wouldn't let my kid have a mobile phone, you know. There is a bit of an imbalance there. That was a guy called Michael Smith, who I I really like, who founded Calm. He also founded the game Moshi Monsters in London, and he's had had a great success. And yeah, I wanted to explore what's become more acute since then, because that interview I did with him was just the month before the pandemic really took hold. It's February 2020. I wanted to make the point that here you are with this mindfulness app, it's all about balance in your life, but that's almost impossible to achieve in a Silicon Valley startup, which is all, or most of them is all about pulling all-nighters and peeps around the screens and not having any focus but work. To be fair to him, it did seem to be quite a nice sort of gentle, placid workplace, but you can bet that in any place like that, there are huge tensions behind the scenes. You spoke to a few case studies about their social media use. You also interviewed Elon Musk at one point and referenced that and the founder of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee. However, there was one case study I wanted to pick out from a woman called Belinda Palmer, who was a consultant. And she says in the book that she was checking her phone so much that she admitted she was neglecting her own children. And you said, quote, she had come to see her phone and the constant social media updates as a kind of drug. How did you feel writing that? That seems incredibly sad. Well, Belinda, who's great, was on the opposite side of the coin from Amy Auburn. She was one of the people pushing this idea that these things are incredibly dangerous. And I was in two minds about it. I'd first met her because we used to put her on air as a woman who talked about technology, which was great at a time when it was quite difficult to get good female commentators. I also slightly felt that Tech is Bad for You was her latest theme, and which she was selling to her clients. She runs a consultancy, which is all about empathy, empathy in tech, which is great. But I felt that she wasn't particularly evidence-driven. But she makes very important points about how obsessive the technology can become. Something that I feel I need to sort of wake up to from time to time when I look at my screen time. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, how many hours a day I am glued to my screen. And we needed to have that debate. And she was a good, helpful voice in that debate. I want to talk now about Parkinson's, Rory, because it's a health condition you were diagnosed with later in life. And we're going to talk about the sort of more in-depth mental health angle later in the pod. But specifically on the book, tell me about the live interview you did that was trialling 5G and how it inadvertently outed your diagnosis. So I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in January 2019. And actually, even before then, somebody had written into the BBC seeing a previous live broadcast from Jersey, where I was holding a piece of fibre optic cable and my hand was shaking and had suggested I get seen. I already suspected I had Parkinson's, but I had that diagnosis in January. And then in May, I was doing a great little story, which was the launch of the first 5G network in Britain. We were doing it for breakfast TV, 
BBC Breakfast. And we had this gimmick that we were going to broadcast over the 5G network. We turned up sort of mob-handed at Covent Garden, had a router on the roof of a van, 5G router, which connected us to Salford, BBC studio in Salford. And there was a funny incident in that the line went down and we couldn't work out what had gone on. And I, you know, cussing. And then it turned out that EE, which had supplied the router, had been out with BBC engineers testing it the whole day before and they'd used up the data allowance. So it needed a top up before we could actually speak to BBC Breakfast. Anyway, I eventually did get on air and it all went fine. And then I went off to do some more filming and the producer that I was working with, who I worked with a lot, a great producer called Priya, said to me as we were travelling to Birmingham, have you ever thought about going public about your Parkinson's? She knew about it. And I said, no, no. Well, I said, yes, I have thought about it, but what, what, what's caused you to say that? And she said, well, it was very obvious during the live broadcast. Maybe it was particularly tense, but when I got back, my hand was, I've got a tremor in my right hand. My hand was shaking like nobody's business. And I thought, yeah, you're right. It's probably time to, to come out and say something about it. And I just wrote a tweet explaining, some of you may have noticed my hand shaking. Uh, I've got Parkinson's, but I'm getting treatments onwards and upwards. And it got a huge response, which was really, really positive. You know, thousands and thousands of retweets, phone calls, you know, interest from the papers and so on. So that was a positive experience, mm. which not uh, lots of people diagnosed with Parkinson's don't have. That disclosure um, control really seems like it was important to you, Roy. And I remember I was working in the BBC press office at that time, so it was actually a good news story that we got that we got calls about for once rather than yeah. rather than negatives. Yeah. You also did a very personal piece about it, and you write about that in the book and and the research being done to find a cure. You spoke to a scientist at a place called Hammersmith Hospital called Steve Gentleman, who would dissect a human brain for you to show your viewers how Parkinson's affects it. And he said this to you. He said, these are invaluable, these brains. I have huge respect for people who make this commitment. It's a personal choice, but this is what makes us human. We are altruistic. We want to help other people. That quote in the book brought you to tears then. Why was it so powerful for you? Well, just to put in context, that was about the brain bank at Hammersmith Hospital where people leave their brains for research. And I was making a film for... BBC Breakfast, just as the pandemic was really getting underway. And I'd been on a visit before, so I knew what to expect, seeing you know, this kind of quite vivid moment where this scientist picks up the brain and shows it to you. And he got me to actually hold this brain that had been left by an elderly lady. I don't know, his words, it obviously was a moment of high emotion anyway, but there was something about the articulate way in which he, he summed up why we do these things, why we might leave our bodies to science, why that makes us human, that just got to me. I had to stop for a couple of minutes and gather myself again. Let's reflect on this journalism journey now, Rory. So A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, what is your proudest achievement, would you say? Oh, golly, what's it taught me about myself? Um... It's taught me stuff that I knew, that I am curious about people. I'm a very sociable person. I like meeting people. I like hearing their stories. It's taught me that I'm quite an impatient person. <laughs> so short deadlines are good for me. Longer deadlines, more challenging because 
I need a, a spur to actually get down and do stuff. I can be all over the place otherwise. Proudest achievement, I think actually achieving as, as a technology correspondent, a level of expertise and using that to translate, because that's the job of my kind of journalist, is translating really difficult subjects, which I struggle to understand, in a way that people will find accessible. I've been really touched a couple of times since, since I've effectively retired. Somebody came up to me at an event in Liverpool the other day and said, thank you. And I said, what for? He said, well, I'm a teacher and I used to watch you and you explained things so well. And I then explained some of them to my students and just thank you for doing that. And I was, you know, incredibly touched by that. We talked about Roy Kethlin-Jones, the journalist. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, Rory. So I ask all my special guests this question first on this topic. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Rory we meet here? Well, this is really interesting. I don't think I have been a very reflective person until recently. I grew up in a one-bedroom council flat, a posh council flat, flats that were sold quite early, but a council flat nevertheless, with my mother, who was a difficult woman, had a challenging life, twice over a single mother. She got married in the late 1930s, had a son, my half-brother Stephen, in 1942 by her husband, left her husband, who was older than her. He didn't approve of her working at the BBC, where she worked as a secretary. He thought, basically, they were a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. She came to London with her young son to work in television drama, Sounds glamorous, but she was living in horrible sort of bedsits in Maid of Ale and so on, obviously struggling. Then got this council flat, which she was delighted by. He thought it was paradise in the mid-50s. And then in the late 50s, just as her son was growing up, was about to turn 16, thinking of, you know, his future, life was getting better. She had an affair with a much younger man, a colleague at the BBC, which resulted in me and my parents split up before I was born. So I grew up with her, didn't meet my dad until I was 23. Didn't think that that was a huge problem. As a kid, you kind of accept the world as it is. Mm. Apart from embarrassment, actually, was the principal thing in my childhood. Not wanting to talk about who my dad was. And my dad was actually slightly famous because he was the director of a very popular television drama in the 1960s, late 1960s, The Foresight Saga. Not really wanting to discuss with friends why I didn't have a dad, thinking they were divorced, my parents, when they, they were not divorced, they were never married. My mum, rather interestingly, changed her name by deed poll the day before I was born so that I would have my father's name. And I had two big figures in my life. It was my mother, who was increasingly eccentric and very, very protective, quite a warm in some ways, but quite a difficult woman. And my brother, Stephen, who was, was a sort of father figure, 16 years older than me, went off to work in the theatre, quite a, a glamorous figure, very nervy, highly strung, intense, two very highly strung, nervous, intense people in different ways. So people used to say to me, family, what I did have was a lovely, on my mother's side, really warm family in Birmingham and other parts of the country. 
who I used to spend a lot of time with, and they used to say, how have you turned out so normal? When, frankly, I mean, it was slightly almost a joke that how eccentric my mum was and how driven and nervy and eccentric in many ways my brother was. So I appeared to be a very normal, steady person without too many problems. And I think that's probably how I saw myself. But obviously there was this big burning issue of my father, who I eventually wrote to when I was 23, when I was about to leave university and met and began a whole new relationship with and then met my younger half-siblings. I don't remember agonising about it. I remember being angry when he didn't reply at first and it turned out to be a mistake, the letter had gone astray. But I think looking back on it, that was a huge challenge. After that meeting with your dad, I want to talk about social class and how you related to you and your half-brothers. How did social class play out in your own conception of it and how you related to them? Well, that's really interesting. Class in this country is such a finely graded and weird business. So I went to a private school, Dulwich College, although I went on a a free or what's called an assisted place, the Inner London Education Authority, like lots of the kids at that school at that time. My two half brothers went to Westminster School. So another private school. But I think I was immediately aware that they were, and that the Kettle and Jones family were a cut above, were a different class from the Birmingham family, which I'd sort of been nurtured by, my mum's family. My mum's family were daily male people, I would classify them as. My dad's family were times people. And of course, actually, if you look back in my dad's history, They've come up in the world. His father was a surgeon in Swansea who hadn't come from a, a very posh background but became a very wealthy surgeon and sent his son to very posh schools and to Cambridge. Whereas my mum, she came from a farming family and her dad went down the social scale and ended up uh, spending a, a lot of money on horses and the, the drink and running a pub. And my mum left school at 14 and was a secretary in an accountancy office. But somehow, they shouldn't be that different. But what I was aware of was how much confidence that background gives you. Uh, the kind of confidence that I've, maybe I've acquired it recently, but at the time, I was very unconfident about my place in the world. And about things like money. I think money is a really interesting area. Mm. So I was always incredibly careful about money because my mother had been, my mother, for obvious reasons, although she actually left quite a lot of money when she died. She'd saved it up under the bed. She'd always refused the flat which we lived in. In the mid-70s, she could have bought for £5,000 from the council, but she thought it was all a con. Sounds Um, like my grandparents, hiding money under the bed. I think my granddad used to do that. (laughs) Yeah, but that made me, actually for very good reasons, because I didn't have any money when I started off on my own. My dad and his family, I mean, I think my dad actually almost went bankrupt at one point because he was a a bit fast and loose with money and his kids, to some extent, I think, followed that path. I want to finish your mental health journey by coming back to Parkinson's, if we can, Rory. So can you tell me how you felt when you were first diagnosed and how it affects your mental health and your physical health for the listeners who might not be clued up on it? When I was first diagnosed, it didn't have a huge impact, partly because... I'd had something 15 years earlier, which was a malignant melanoma behind my eye, which was terrifying. 
to be told you've got cancer behind your eye and a tumour that needs to be dealt with. That felt life-threatening. That was really, really scary. Parkinson's felt like, oh, here we go. It's a long-running disease which can kill you eventually. And my dad had died with it, but he was 88 and it was one of a number of things he had. So obviously I wasn't delighted to learn about this, but it didn't seem too bad. The physical effects were a lot of weakness on my right side. and My typing, which has always been bad, got a lot worse and dragging my right foot. And I used to run and I couldn't really run anymore. And those physical manifestations have only got slightly worse over the last three and a half years. But what did happen, and it kind of crept up on me without me really thinking about it, was I did go into a depression for the the first year or so after my diagnosis. And it was just lurking, lurking there, unexamined. Everything seemed dark. And it wasn't that I was agonising over the Parkinson's. It was just depression. Mm. And I didn't talk about it, which is not helpful. I didn't really even tell my wife about it until afterwards. And strangely, it began to lift at a time when other people were probably going into depression, which is when the pandemic started. And I retreated to this room from my office at the BBC. And somehow the challenge of keeping on working and doing a weekly radio programme and having constant Zoom calls with colleagues, I don't know, somehow energised me and the depression began to lift. One of the most famous people to have lived with Parkinson's, as you know, Rory, was heavyweight boxer Muhammad Ali. Obviously, by the end of his life, the Parkinson's had caused him to become involuntarily mute. So what I want to know from you is, is that knowing that, how important was it when you found that community of Parkinson's and the people online who are either living with it or supporting people who are living with it? How important was that for you when you'd come out about it? Well, again, it's something that maybe I've not reflected on enough. I was very much wanting to be open. I was wanting to be involved from a professional, funny enough, as well as a personal point of view, writing about it. And I now write a newsletter about health and technology in general, not just about Parkinson's, but quite a bit of it is. But it's been really stimulating to meet other people and, and to, fr- to be frank, to realise that a lot of people have got it much worse than I have. I'm touch wood, reasonably slowly in decline and I'm, I'm coping pretty well. But what's been great is sharing experiences and getting tips. A friend I met the other day told me, oh, I think you're a bit under-medicated. And I kind of saw what she meant. You know, I had not been taking my pills at the right time and, yeah, needed to step up to the plate, as it were. And just finding, frankly, a new bunch of friends has been great. Let's reflect on your journey now before we finish the pod, Rory. So what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to the Rory who was maybe a bit anxious about coming back to that one bed flat from Birmingham with your family or the Rory who was briefly unemployed after leaving university or the Rory about to hit send on that tweet announcing his Parkinson's diagnosis, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd say don't worry. (laughs) Well, I'd say two things. I'd say be a bit more adventurous when I was younger, be a bit less fearful, be a bit more self-confident, maybe be a bit more arrogant even about one's capabilities. But 
generally, I feel pretty lucky. I had a slightly strange childhood, but there was a lot of love there. I mean, my mother was a very difficult woman, but, you know, loved me dearly. I had wonderful family from my mother's side who just welcomed me in every holiday. So I, in general, I feel pretty fortunate. And I've had various illnesses, but I've had huge support throughout them from not just family, friends, colleagues, and so on. So I'd say, be confident, be happy, keep on trucking. And on that note, Rory Kathleen-Jones is a former BBC staff member who watched you quite a lot when I was younger and when I was at the BBC as well. It's been a pleasure. It's been a privilege to have you on the Just Checking In podcast. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. It's been really interesting. That's it for this episode on the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to BBC legend Rory Kathleen Jones for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll put a link to where you can follow Rory and buy Always On in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, maybe tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family about it, spread the good news about Vent. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those algorithms. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation by going to our GoFundMe. That is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys... It is always okay to vent. <laughs>